from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. After the name-calling, the finger-pointing, and the ridiculing of one another at the NATO summit in London, it's clear NATO has a problem. You know, I think everybody has recognized that over the past few years, something has changed in the way um, democratic leaders express their opinions. Um, there's more bluntness these days uh, because of perhaps social media. Uh, there is a tendency to concentrate on the headline and not the substance. And this type of behavior, according to Jonathan Vesevyov, Estonia's ambassador to the U.S., is sending the wrong message to NATO's adversaries. You know, we're, we're not big fans of this. Um, I guess this is the way things are. Um, but we obviously want to make sure that we do not send mixed messages out. Granted, NATO was created to protect countries like Estonia, which sits at Russia's front door from the powerful aggression of the Soviet Union. The Cold War is said to be over, the Soviet Union is gone, but Russia's aggression is back. If you uh, will consider us to be the um, cannery in the coal mine, uh, yeah. we're the ones who are on the front lines, as you said. But in his words, there appears to be a warning to those Western nations that seem to be caught up in name-calling. Geography matters less these days, and being uh, far from uh, the potential source of danger does not necessarily mean that you're safe. So what's the impact of all the public bickering, and what is the message it's sending to NATO's adversaries? All that and more coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. After the shocking public displays of animosity and aggression towards each other by some of the country leaders in the run-up to, during, and following the NATO summit in London in late November, many observers were left wondering, if NATO really is falling apart. Name-calling, finger-pointing, public airing of problems that should have been kept private may have given Russia just what it's always wanted, a fractured, ineffective alliance. But on this episode of Target USA, Jonathan Vasevyov, Estonia's ambassador to the U.S., says public appearances don't tell. But the London summit said an awful lot. It did receive quite a bit of uh, media coverage here in the United States, um, but I think uh, a lot of it um, was, um, to a certain extent, off the point. I think the main point for us was that the summit was a, a significant success story, uh, primarily because of the unity that NATO managed to demonstrate, notwithstanding all the statements, all the news stories. At the end of the day, our leaders got together. It was a group good, even though brief meeting, and uh, most importantly, we agreed to a, a NATO summit declaration, a very short uh, but very to-the-point document that's open on the website, uh, has, uh, I think, a few pages, nine points, 
uh, talks about not only the past of the alliance and the present, but also about the future, the challenges that we face, and the need for NATO to become even stronger in the future. So I think all in all, uh, the summit was a uh, as successful as anybody could have imagined or anybody could have hoped for. And we're looking forward to 2020 and continuing the important work of defending the Euro-Atlantic area, defending our core values, our democracies. Ambassador, you have always been a very optimistic individual. Uh, and I understand what you say about the coverage here in Washington. But, you know, you talk about this very important declaration. I don't think anybody here even knew what that declaration was after all of the shenanigans that went on before that between the leaders of Canada, the U.S., London, uh, the, the U.K., and, and uh, France. And, but you say that um, there was tremendous unity. So there was this unity behind the scenes, or where was this unity? Because it just didn't seem to be out in front of the cameras. Well, the way NATO operates, it brings together uh, 29 democracies uh, from Europe and North America. Anything that the organization does has to be consensus-based. So you need to get everybody on board. Uh, it's a shame, indeed, that people haven't concentrated on the declaration. Um, these things don't just happen. It's not as if our leaders, prime ministers, presidents get together and draft the text. It's uh, been, it has to be negotiated, usually for weeks, uh, by diplomats, by senior diplomats, and eventually um, approved by the heads of state and government. And that has received almost no coverage, even though it's a noteworthy document. It is uh, straightforward when discussing the need for unity. It is straightforward when discussing threats that we share. It mentions Russia's aggressive actions as a threat to Euro-Atlantic security, obviously mentions terrorism. It talks about what NATO will have to do in the future. Now, again, this is not a text that somebody just drafted. This is a text that all NATO allies agreed to, every single comma, every single word. There was no controversy around it, and the wording is quite strong. Frankly speaking, as an organization, NATO, from an internal point of view, does not need leaders' meetings. Uh, the North Atlantic Council, which is in permanent session, uh, where usually ambassadors get together with the Secretary General, they have all the legal rights to make decisions on behalf of the member states. And yet, from time to time, uh, foreign ministers and defense ministers, and indeed sometimes heads of state and government, get together. And the main reason for that is to either solve certain outstanding issues that cannot be solved at junior levels, or to uh, send a message to the uh, rest of the world. I think the main outcome of this summit, again, notwithstanding some of the media coverage, was the, uh, the message that was sent out. We got together, uh, I mean, we, uh, as well as any, any other diplomat here in Washington or in Brussels, were perfectly aware of all the potential scenarios that could happen, could have happened. Uh, none of the worst-case scenarios actually happened. We managed to demonstrate our ability to not only put out that declaration, but all in all stay together, even though there are major differences of opinion in, in many areas between the Allies. Well, that's my question. Considering these differences of opinions and the fact that, as you mentioned, almost no one knows what went on in this, what, what the outcome of this declaration was, then doesn't that suggest that there needs to be some 
some adjustments in the the NATO. Uh, maybe it's the public relations process or something because image is everything. I mean, all this important work goes on behind the scenes, and I know this. Most of the people who listen to this program uh, and all of our, our broadcasting uh, knows that NATO is a political organization with a military uh, objective, and it does operate on its own. It really doesn't, as you say, need these leaders out in front, but they are. And it's unfortunate, again, as you mentioned, but does this suggest that there perhaps needs to be some adjustments in the way in which NATO communicates to the world, or can that even be controlled? Well, the main thing is that NATO is not in the business of, uh, in, in a PR business, we're in the business of defense and deterrence. And that's what has to function. Uh, to a certain extent, we cannot control news stories that are out there, the narratives that are oftentimes driven by our member states, uh, internal dynamics, internal domestic politics. I mean, we are all democracies, and democracies uh, have a tradition of having vibrant debates, uh, not yeah. only about you know domestic affairs, but also international affairs. That's normal. I don't think we need to get rid of that. I mean, that that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, us getting our messages um, out there is obviously important, and uh, hopefully, you know, people recognize that uh, we obviously, while communicating with words and statements, we also communicate with action, mm -hmm. uh, stuff that we actually do, uh, some of which is naturally classified as, as public, you know, the planning that we undertake, the internal deliberations that we have as an alliance. Some of them are, are, you know, more visible to the outside world, like exercises or military presence of, uh, for instance, American troops in, in Europe, uh, something that has gone up. Defense expenditures have uh, received a lot of coverage for obvious reasons. Now, it's important to note that the money that NATO allies put into their defense is going up, but it's also important to understand that this is not just money that goes in. There are actual capabilities that come out because of that money going in actual capabilities that we use in our planning and in our exercises, and at the end of the day, we use to deter and defend our common Euro-Atlantic area. So there are good things taking place. Now, nothing is ever perfect, of course, and that's why we need to have those discussions and debates. Um, and we will have them. One of the outcomes of the summit was an agreement to have a forward-looking reflection process um, under the Secretary General, Secretary General Stoltenberg, that will look at how NATO would perhaps better um, operate in a changing world. But also, I want to draw people's attention to the fact that it's not often that NATO gets together and discusses new areas of security, new technologies, new regions, recognizing the fact that the world is changing. And even though we stay united in defending our territories, we recognize that this is no longer just you know doable in Europe and North America alone. Other regions, new domains, you know, cyber and the space, uh, they matter. So I think you know NATO is um, up and running. Um, we're uh, a small nation, as I hope most of your listeners know, a small nation at the periphery of NATO. Uh, we're uh, very much aware of the security challenges uh, to not only our but but allied um, security. We uh, would not be quiet if we thought that there are major problems with this cornerstone of our security. And yet I'm here telling you that things are okay. Things are going well. Well, this is precisely a part of the reason why we wanted you here, because we knew we could get a straight 
cut at this from you. And um, I appreciate that you come at things head on and address it straight up. You're on the front line of NATO's periphery with Russia, and you've mentioned Russia in this conversation at least once. Um, At the same time, not to continue to beat this dead horse of about the, the messaging, but when you have a President Macron saying the leadership is brain dead, and then you have our President Trump going back at him saying that's insulting, and then you have other scenarios like that, those people who make up mainly Russia uh, the target or the focal point of, of NATO have to draw some um, understanding from that kind of activity between the people that are on the same team. Doesn't it concern you or does it concern you that this may embolden those threats uh, that NATO is set up to, to deal with? And perhaps send messages to others who are considering, who are not in the in the alliance, who are considering uh, possibly engaging in ways that could make life difficult for NATO members. You know, I think everybody has recognized that over the past few years, something has changed in the way um, democratic leaders express their opinions. Um, there's more bluntness these days. Uh, because of perhaps social media, uh, there is a tendency to concentrate on the headline and not the substance. I mean, you mentioned it just a minute ago. Most people haven't read or probably haven't even uh, realized that there was a declaration that leaders uh, put out, which is, again, just a, I, I think a two-page document, not a lengthy and complicated uh, text. Um you know, we're, we're we're not big fans of this. Um, I guess this is the way things are. Um, but we obviously want to make sure that we do not send mixed messages out, uh, that we do not confuse anybody into believing that there is an alternative to um, to having a viable transatlantic relationship. Uh, if you uh, will consider us to be the um, cannery in the coal mine, uh, yeah. we're the ones who are on the front lines, as you said, even though geography matters less these days and being uh, far from... Uh, the potential source of danger does not necessarily mean that you're safe. Uh, it wasn't our elections uh, that were attacked. Uh, it wasn't our streets on which um, people were murdered uh, by the uh, secret services of uh, Russia. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the fact that you're far from the border doesn't necessarily mean that you're somehow isolated. I mean, or we, we know this or safer. We've been, we've been talking about this, obviously, in the context of international terrorism, for instance. But it's ever more so uh, with cybersecurity, uh, with you know the challenges that, that derive from technological development. So, I mean, clearly uh, sending clear messages to our friends, but also our potential adversaries, is of utmost importance. And we honestly cannot see uh, an alternative in this changing world to for for the democratic world to stick together and work together, no matter what challenge we're discussing, instability in the wider world or uh, the technological change or the rise of China, you name it, we cannot see a way for uh, the democratic world based upon, you know, societies based upon a similar philosophy to to survive or thrive beyond the 21st century unless we stick together. And NATO is one of the cornerstones of us sticking together. This is the organization that brings together not all of the democracies in the world, 
but a good you know, number of them, a clear majority of them in the Euro-Atlantic area. There are other aspects that are important, of course, the overall transatlantic relationship that encompasses the EU-US relationship, for instance, uh, very much trade-focused, or our bilateral relations with the United States. So we need to make sure that these things, um, these things um, are okay, uh, that we stay true to our principles while engaging with um, uh, other nations, which is obviously also necessary. I mean, we can't pretend that um, we can, you know, take care of our security by just focusing on defense. We have to have a, you know, a vibrant diplomatic effort um, as well. But while engaging with others diplomatically, we need to stick together, do so from a position of strength and stay true to our principles. The thing that President Trump talked about was increasing the amount of um, participation, financial participation from um, NATO countries. Uh, where does where does where does Estonia stand on that? Well, we're um, in agreement. Uh, the uh, that issue can be divided into two sort of subcategories. One is uh, a relatively um, insignificant amount of money that uh, we have to spend to just keep the organization itself running. Uh, the headquarters, and the international staff that we have hired who uh, work for NATO as an organization. And there was an agreement to amend the way we allocate those costs between the member states, between the allies. The other aspect to... Uh, Sorry, just to interrupt. The insignificant amount, that's not the 2%. That's not the 2%. The other aspect is the 2%. 2%. That's the amount of money we each spend, not on NATO, but on our own defense. And this is not some money uh, that uh, people have to put up and, and you know hand over to other nations or hand over to uh, NATO or the Secretary General. That's still a different thing. The 2% goal um, has been agreed to by allies as a minimum level for their own defense expenditures. Now, it's no secret that uh, a number of NATO allies have not uh, yet met that benchmark. And it's no secret that President Trump has, to a large extent, concentrated on that problem. Now, we're with him when it comes to this problem. Uh, we have been, as hopefully, again, most people know, we've been at 2% for quite some time now. Uh, we think that is the minimum uh, required um, uh, not only required by our agreement, but a minimum for providing for a, a, a viable defense. And we're glad to see uh, the number of allies that actually join that club um, increase. Mm -hmm. uh, defense budgets are on the increase. But more important than the money is the actual capabilities that we are now able to, um, to have. Um, and then the question is, what do we do with those capabilities? Well, well, we're a defensive organization, clearly. We need to posture our forces in a way that communicates clearly to all others that NATO is going to defend each and every square mile of its territory, the airspace, the cyberspace. And NATO is not only willing to do so, but also capable of doing so. And we're making progress in that front as well. Now, a lot of this is relatively mundane. We'll never reach the news. Nobody will ever discuss this publicly. Uh, but that's the more important aspect of what NATO does. Make, the military sorry. exercises, the planning, the infrastructure, the way our forces are postured, all of this is really crucial, especially for us as a frontline state. Making sure that the foundation is solid. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. So then what, what about the 4%? Because that surfaced recently as well from President Trump. Where do you stand on that? 
I think he mentioned um, uh, he, he didn't mention three or, or percent or something uh, along that lines. Well, I think he was referring to the fact that the United States is significantly above two percent when it comes to defense spending. Of course, not all of U.S. defense money is spent on the Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, the U.S. is a global power, obviously has a lot of interests in other regions of the world. Um, that is not a that's not the official uh, benchmark. That's, that's that's not the official goal. By the way, we in Estonia are also above two percent. Yeah. That's why we always say above 2%. We're not at 2%. We're above 2%. There are a few others who are above 2%. But the reason why 2% is important is because that's the agreed minimum. That's yeah. what you have to be at. And I think it's only good. I mean, it's not it's not good for NATO only. It's good for the member states, for the allies, to have a more credible, uh, more capable defense. Do you think Article 5 is still ironclad considering... Again, the public, you know, demonstrations of frustration with each other. You know, what happens if there is a need? You know, I, I think Article 5 has only been enacted once, and that Indeed. was 9-11 here in the U.S. Today, and to be clear about it, back in those days, in 20, uh, 2001, the global democratic um the global democratic uh, of, of, of interaction between these nations was much different. It was, as you mentioned, you know, democratic leaders were, they acted towards each other much differently, but these public pronouncements of frustration now, do you think they will or could impact the ability to enact Article 5 if necessary? Well, Article 5 has been invoked once, as you correctly pointed out, right after the uh, 9-11 attacks. And to be clear about it, Article 5 means if one is attacked, all is attacked, and the all will rise to defend the one. Sorry that's, to interrupt. That That's the collective defense clause at the heart of what NATO is all about. Uh, all for one, one for all. Yes, officially enacted only once after 9-11 when the United States was attacked. But Article 5 is what has kept the Euro-Atlantic world safe for 70 years now. So I think it would be mistaken to think of this as something that has never been used and then was once used and now, you know, who knows. This construct, this is at the heart of the, of the alliance, has kept originally just Western Europe and now all of Europe. So in other words, this is... Including, by the way, not, not just Europe, but also North America safe. We managed to face down a major adversary in yeah. the Soviet Union. Yeah. We managed to come through the confusing years of the post-Cold War uh, world. We've uh, defeated you know, all sorts of terrorist organizations uh, acting together. So this continues to be at the heart of the organization. Now, do I believe whether this, is still, whether this um, still functions? Well, it functions from our perspective for sure. So I'm, I'm happy to say that from our perspective, Article 5 continues to be ironclad. We're confident that the um, uh, same is true for all other allies, notwithstanding all the differences of opinion, which, by the way, are natural and will always remain with us. Um, I think when people look at the way, again, we uh, act, uh, when people look at the way we have postured our forces, there are allied forces in Estonia, for instance, as we speak today, serving side by side with our forces in Estonia. Yeah. Uh, so there are clear demonstrations. There are allied aircraft, military aircraft, patrolling our airspace as we speak today. Not Estonian aircraft, allied aircraft. 
So um, uh, again, I think when people look at the um, the construct that we have in place, um, it remains credible. That's not to say that it doesn't need uh, enhancing. We think it does. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not for just you know sitting and being happy and congratulating ourselves on what well, we achieved. How would you enhance it? Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. But and and it's, but but I also want to mention that secondly, oh, of course, of course. Public disagreements that get out of hand, um, you know, uh, allies um, uh, publicly criticizing each other is not good. And we should get beyond that, no matter what the topic. I mean, there are legitimate disagreements, always will be, but we need to get beyond them as fast as we possibly can, find agreements as fast as we possibly can. So what should NATO do? Well, I briefly mentioned the new areas, for instance, you know, the cyberspace. We've been talking about cyber for a few years now. That is very important. Obviously, space uh, is an you know, emer- emerging topic, uh, but also the traditional areas of just building up defenses in Europe and North America. Next year, by the way, will be a, there will be a major exercise, uh, an American exercise, Defender 2020, that for the first time after the end of the Cold War, will um, test the, um, the constant of strategic reinforcement of Europe, where forces in large number from continental United States will deploy to Europe and then undertake exercises with Europeans in Europe. These sorts of things don't necessarily make news uh, on a daily basis, but this has to be the routine that we undertake. So it's planning, it's exercising, it's forced posture. The number of American forces in Europe has been on the increase. Obviously, the number of European forces is on the increase as well because of the increasing defense investments. Um, That's what we need to do. We cannot afford to just be satisfied with what has been achieved in the past few years when collective defense has become the the norm again. Uh, More needs to happen because the challenges are real. They're not political. They're not not made up by those who want to use these things as as political talking points. The challenges are real. The world is a dangerous place. And um, this um, system of governments uh, of ours, the way we've organized our societies as democracies, we are in a minority. Uh, and we need to defend this uh, you know, uh, system of governance, our way of life. Um, and that's becoming more challenging. As technology is changing, the way we get our news is changing. A lot of things are changing. Um, this is no time for internal division, in our opinion. Yeah, absolutely. What I was going to jump in on a little bit ago was essentially summing up from a layman's point of view. What you're saying is we don't, we shouldn't look at Article 5 as something that's been, as you said, enacted one time, but something that's actually in effect every single day and has been every single day for the last 70 years. And that's what keeps NATO prominent and and productive. Indeed, it's the same as in, you know, w- w- with the military in general. Um, you don't only use the military in, in an actual active operation in war. Uh, more often, you use your military to sustain peace. Um, that's what NATO does. Mm-hmm. Only it does it collectively with the militaries, but also the political power of all of the world's um, major democracies combined. That has kept peace in um, our part of uh, the world for seven decades now. And that, by the way, was one of the reasons why it was decided that the meeting, the leaders' meeting, uh, 
had to be held in London because that was the original home for uh, NATO headquarters. Uh, this past spring, on the exact, the actual date of the 70th birthday of the alliance, um, there was a foreign ministers meeting here in Washington, D.C., and that was because the treaty of which Article 5 that we discussed is a part of, the treaty that founded NATO, the treaty that still guides this organization, is called the Washington Treaty, because it was signed here, right here in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, as always, it's a very enlightening thing to sit down and talk with you extensively about um, matters of NATO and Estonia and the U.S., the relationship and all of the nuances that make it all up. Um, before we wrap up today, um, just one other question about where NATO, uh, where Estonia is going right now. Where do you see Estonia headed, and um, how do you um, assess uh, how it's getting there? Well, we're headed to the future, <laughs> as is everybody else. Uh, we think the future is going to be digital. We have created uh, what we think is the first and probably still the only truly digital government in uh, the world where the majority of interactions between the citizens and the government take place online, where we do our taxes online in just a few minutes. We even vote online. Um, so I think the, the world is... We always have to rub that in. Well, we, 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 we sort we of do. We can't do that we, here. We do, and, and plus I should also <laughs> add that... We don't almost, know how to do that here. Almost nobody in Estonia almost never has to stand in a line at a DMV because everything is digital. Everything is digital. So we think that's And you the only future. have one ID you need to keep up with. That's your one ID. Um, which <laughs> we is have at least ID. five. I know. We get to have smaller wallets instead. <laughs> um, so I think that's the future. Uh, now, that's not... I, I think we're only scratching the surface yeah. of what the technological change uh, will bring us. There will be major benefits for us as human beings functioning in a democratic society, but there will also be major major challenges that we need to openly discuss and um, and deal with. And nothing is going to be easy when it comes to the technological revolution that's taking place these days. And again, as a country that does use uh, digital services on a daily basis, we are absolutely convinced that none of the challenges of the future uh, can be uh, solved by any one nation state alone. Certainly not by a small nation state like us, neither by a big one like uh, the United States. These challenges are bigger than any one nation state. So if we're interested in, in um, you know, um, sustaining uh, our way of life in the age of technological revolution, then the nations that share a common understanding of what democracy is have to work together and have to work together more closely perhaps than we have uh, done so in the past. And this is, again, an area where we're trying to not only be the messengers, but we're also trying to be, um, if you will, leaders, um, both in our bilateral relations with other allies, but also within organizations like NATO. Well, Ambassador, um, thanks for sharing that with us. Estonia's ambassador to the U.S., Jonathan Vesivio. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next program. Anytime there is an impeachment proceeding going on in the Congress to remove a president, it consumes a lot of time and energy. That voice belongs to the man who was the very first Homeland Security Secretary for the Trump administration, 
for almost one working day. His name is Jay Johnson. He was better known as the Homeland Security Secretary for President Barack Obama. And he suggests the impeachment proceedings underway have taken a far worse toll on the U.S. than we might imagine because of its divisive nature. And my primary concern about the current debate where certain people are trying to create doubt about whether it was the Russians versus the Ukrainians sends the signal to Vladimir Putin and the Russian government, hey, we're not so sure you were the ones responsible for this. You know, we're getting a, a muddled picture. You had one member of the United States Senate a couple of weeks ago say, I don't know. The toll impeachment is taking on U.S. national security. Coming up on our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I really appreciate the fact you've let us in once again to share some time with you. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, that's one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter as well, at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And you can sign up for our newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. If you want to check out a really interesting podcast, check out The Adam Carolla Show. It's every weekday on Podcast One. The Ace Man still holds the Guinness Book of World Records title for most downloaded podcasts in the world as he complains about whatever is on his mind with his celebrity pals. So don't miss it. Weekdays on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.